Our text tonight in this passage in 1 Peter is verses 3 to 5. Uh, we won't cover everything in them, we'll come back to them again, but really just to introduce some of the great themes. And uh, in our text we find that there are great truths which can help us so much when we face difficulties in our lives and troubles and maybe hostility and opposition and persecution and rejection. And as we have seen, Peter is writing to these brethren that are facing really awful times. They've been scattered, they've been slandered, we know that they've been blamed for the burning down of Rome, and they've been targeted with the most appalling persecution. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit, as he's opened this letter, in the greeting itself, he has reminded them that they are chosen of God, that even though they weren't esteemed by the world or in the world, they were chosen of God, loved of God, they were citizens of heaven. And so when suffering came and persecution, no doubt they would have been rocked, maybe had many questions, but he wants them to know that God loves them, is with them, the sovereign purpose of God towards them is unmoved, unchanged, and the amazing grace that has saved them in the past will sustain them in the present and will keep them forever. And so they shouldn't be afraid, they shouldn't be ashamed. And then as he moves on into the main body of the letter, we see that there is this outpouring of praise. In verses 3 to 5, it's what we call a doxology. It's a, it's a wonderful outpouring of worship. He bursts into praise. Friends, truth, and truth particularly like we've been considering in the election of God, should also always lead to that worship and that praise and that adoration. And he demonstrates that praise is always fitting for the believer, even when they're in the darkness of the valley. And he wants to encourage these believers to lift their spirits and their hearts by reminding them again of the greatness of God and the glory of God. And so he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that little word, be, that you've got in your uh, version, no doubt, is not actually there in the original. It's only implied. And so, in fact, what he's actually saying literally is, bless God. Bless God. It's a point of praise on its own, but also it's an encouragement for others to bless the Lord too. And so Peter wants to take them up in praise and adoration to the Lord, as well as to point them to the great joy of the inheritance which is ahead of them, awaiting them, that which is theirs in Christ. And so in that sense, it is a, a hymn of praise to encourage believers in the midst of the difficulty of living in this fallen and broken and hostile world. And friends, that exhortation comes to us tonight to rejoice in the Lord, regardless of what is happening around us, to find our joy in him, to delight in him. And Peter is, is calling them to a, a decided and a determined expression of praise. It reminds us that the believer's joy isn't dependent upon circumstances. But because they've been brought to know God and that this God is with them and has promised to provide all that they need and to lead them through, there should always be that desire to praise the Lord. And yes, we know the world despises the Lord's people. 
Yes, we know, as we've considered already in this letter, that the Lord's people are strangers, they're, they're outcasts. They no longer belong here. But there is a great glory to come. We've been given a heavenly home, a stunning inheritance. We have a wonderful future, which is not in doubt, friends. It is secure. And it will be all that God has promised for his people and provided in Christ. And that joyful perspective, that eternal perspective, should have a practical impact upon how we face our lives day by day, on how we face when troubles come, to look beyond the immediate to the eternal inheritance and the glory that is ahead. And we see that in these verses. We see that Peter emphasizes a sure future for the child of God. And the praises of Peter, they're focused on the glory of God and the inheritance that he has promised. If you look in verse 4, he says that this inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. Now, when you speak about inheritance, it's not something that you earn. It is something that's given to you, something that is passed to you, something that you receive. And uh, in earthly terms, usually it's because of a, a family connection or something like that. But the word that Peter uses for inheritance draws together the idea not just of an inheritance that is promised in the future, but something which should have an impact upon us right now. So the impact of this inheritance should be felt now, even though we won't know it fully until later. And so when Peter uses this idea, he is speaking of something which is also rich in terms of its links in Jewish thought. He says to these scattered believers in all of these various parts of the Roman Empire, adore God, bless God, praise God, worship God, rejoice in him because of the inheritance that he has given and it would remind them of the fact that in the Old Testament, the Jews have been given an inheritance. In fact, if you were to look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the land of Canaan, you'd find the same word. Given to God's chosen people, Israel, given to every tribe, every family, every Jew, for an inheritance. And so under the Old Covenant, Israel was given this earthly inheritance, the land. The inheritance of uh, the earthly nation Israel was earthly Canaan. And it was promised through Abraham. And then you had that long wait through times of bondage and wandering in the wilderness. And then at last, they're brought into the promised land. And Peter is saying to the believers, you who are a, a spiritual people have a wonderful spiritual inheritance ahead. It is laid up in heaven. You have a great and sure future. And so even though you might feel hemmed in, even though trouble might surround you, even though you might face persecution, your future is sure. And even though you might be in a, a deep, deep valley, whilst you wait, you can still praise God because he is leading you on. He's leading you through. His promises are sure. And so, like the psalmist, Peter wants to give these believers in great distress a song in the seasons of despair. He wants them to bless God. And they needed to remember that, and so do we, this inheritance that has been given to us in the Lord Jesus. Friends, we, we know that we go through trials. 
Some of you have been through very deep trials. And sometimes they come at us and we're not expecting them. And they come with a fierceness that can knock us around. And it's then that we have to come back and focus on our Savior and on the glorious future that is ours in him. Now, in this life, we will never have a full understanding of what it will be. We cannot fully comprehend this this great inheritance. As John writes, it does not yet appear what we shall be. You know, we're, we're children of God, and so we'll continue to grow and develop until that final fulfillment. But as children of God, we are also heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, if we're honest, there are times when we can show our immaturity, and maybe we throw a tantrum if things don't go our way. Sometimes we can put too much focus on temporal things because we don't understand our inheritance. It's sad that that so many believers are living really only for this life. They don't see that eternal perspective. And there are times when the Lord has to take us in hand and discipline us to fit us more for the glory to come. To remind us that this is not our home. This is not it. To bring us on to maturity, to remind us that our best life is not now, it is still to come. You know, we can so quickly forget, think of Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's incredible. That's ahead. And so Peter's exhortation here it is similar to what the Lord Jesus himself taught. Think of Matthew 6:33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That's the perspective we need in the trials. Or Colossians 3, verses 1 to 2. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And it just helps us. We've still got to face those things and we've still got to go through them, but it helps us to see them with that right perspective in the Lord Jesus. And so Peter is calling for this worship to rejoice in God in the inheritance that he has given to us and that will help us when troubles come and we can feel just overwhelmed to see that this is not the end. There is more to come and our future is secure in Christ. Let me ask the question, well, what is this inheritance? Well, I'm just going to introduce it this evening. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this inheritance, in one respect, is the fullness of salvation. It is the full realization of all that is ours in Christ and the glory to come. And so when trials come, Peter says, look, you need to take time to look away from your troubles and to bless God for the eternal salvation that he has given to you and promised you. You know, so when you wake up, remind yourself, you're a child of God. God has taken hold of you. He loves you. And even though things are hard, he is with you. Salvation means rescue. It means deliverance. And Peter is speaking here of that that full and final rescue, which is ours, but will still be fully realized future. The final rescue, 
from all the consequences of the, the curse of the law and the power of sin and the presence of sin, all the decay and the temptation and the grief and the, the pain and the death and the punishment and judgment and wrath, that will all be done. Fall everlasting salvation. You know, when you think about the Lord saving you, if you're a believer tonight, there is obviously that sense in which your salvation is past. You know, we've already seen that it, it goes back into eternity. You know, we are appointed in eternity. We were saved in time when we were given to believe on the Lord Jesus as our, as our Savior. And our sins were forgiven and we were given eternal life. And so in that sense, it, it's something that's happened. There's also a sense in which our salvation is present. We are being cleansed from sin and sanctified. We are being saved. We are being delivered as we head through this world of sin. And so you've got that, that past act with continuing impact, but then you've got this future sense when we will be fully and completely and forever delivered from sin and judgment and in the glory to come. Do you know, friends, I long for that day. Sometimes, you know, we find it hard and we're struggling with sin. We're battling on and we feel all those things going on and we just long to know that release from those things and to be in that liberty true liberty in the Lord Jesus. Think of the following, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 13, 11, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So that, that full realization, that final state is nearer now than when we first believed. We are closer to home. Now, some of us yeah, comment on occasion, you know, one more Lord's Day closer to home. Hebrews 1.14 says of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So we've been saved, we are being saved, but the full inheritance is still to come. Hebrews 9, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so when Jesus comes again, that full revelation fulfilling the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Peter's saying, look to the future. Look to the coming again of Jesus Christ. Look when he will come to in all his glory. Look to the time when you are going to be with him and in his presence. And bless God for this incredible future that he has given you. And yes, times may be bad, but God is good. Yes, the world may reject you and not appreciate you and persecute you and isolate you and marginalize you as a believer, but you have an eternal inheritance ready to be revealed in that great day. An inheritance which is heavenly and glorious and pure and joyous. You know, think of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 25 when he said, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A kingdom has been prepared for us. You know, in my father's house are many mansions. 
Paul describes his own God-given mission in Acts 26 to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so the Lord Jesus sent Paul with this message and it highlights that believers will receive amongst so much an inheritance. Ephesians 1, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, the Holy Spirit of promise with the guarantee of our inheritance, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Do you see all of a sudden how this is emphasized? We have a glorious inheritance to come. And you know, just thinking on that, you know, I was struck in a number of comments made about the nature of this inheritance. I want you just to think on this for a minute. Do you know, believer, we inherit God. We inherit God. You know, just to go back into the Old Testament, Joshua 13, verses 32 to 33 says this. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he had said to them. They say, well, what relevance has that got to us? Well, Levi was the priestly tribe, and they were not given an earthly inheritance Rather, they were given something greater. The Lord God was their inheritance. They would literally inherit God in that sense. Now, for the believer, what is it said of us? 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood. So, so God, the promised inheritance of the priests of Levi, is also the possession of the royal priesthood of Christ. We inherit God. We know him. You see this great truth, by the way, throughout the Psalms. You've probably read it many, many times. Psalm 16, verse 5. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. Or Psalm 73, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, literally my inheritance forever. You think of Jeremiah. We often quote, don't we, Lamentations. Great is thy faithfulness. But what did he say? Lamentations 3.24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. You know, when we go to be with the Lord, when we inherit our salvation, we will inherit God. We will know him like never before. And we will dwell with him. And we will commune with him, the great God. Is that not something staggering to you this night? This has been given to you by grace. We inherit God. We also inherit the Lord Jesus Christ. Says in 1 John, we shall see him like he is, for we shall be made like him. 
We are joint heirs with him. We will know the full realization of our union with Christ, our oneness with him that we have been given by sovereign grace. Such a union and a closeness to be intertwined with him and yet without losing who we are. Christ, our portion. And then we've already inherited the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He is the down payment of our inheritance. So his living in us, his indwelling us, is the guarantee of what is to come. And he will transform us so that we can know these other things in full. You know, these are, these are deep things. They're marvelous things. And when you put the things of this world next to them... Well, then you begin to see the world in the right perspective. And we'll leave this world. We won't be able to take any of the goods of this world with us, but entering into all that God has for us in Christ beyond all that we can imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9 Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What should be our response to that? It should be praise. Bless God. Bless God. And then as we draw it all together, you know, tonight I want you to go away understanding how we should worship and praise the source of this inheritance. To think on that, that phrase to bless God. He is the one who has given this to us. He is the one who has provided it for us. Now, interestingly, for the Jews of the day, this was the way that they would open their prayers. It, it was there, blessed are you, O God. In fact, such an approach was repeated in all of their patterns of prayer. They would identify God as blessed be the God, the creator and the redeemer from Egypt. Those were the two ways that they would commonly define and address God, creator and redeemer of his people from Egypt. But notice in our text, Peter speaks of God and blesses God in a different way. Blessed be God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, eternally true, but very significant at this point. Now, to use the term blessed is simply to say that God is worthy of all our praise. So he's worthy of that. And as God is worthy of that, we should bless him, his character, his works, his goodness. We should bless him. And of course, our praises fall short of what he deserves, but he deserves it nonetheless. And so Peter is not just blessing God in this outburst of praise, but he's saying to all the believers, you should do the same. It's a call to praise. And as the blessing arises, it reminds the Lord's people that they are not alone. I always think it's wonderful when you think of that psalm where it speaks about the praise of God is never ending across the world. So even as our praise comes to its close today, somewhere else around the globe, more believers are waking up to praise God. And so it's never ending praise. And the very act of our worship gathers a distance and a scattered people in that mutual prayer coming to the throne room of heaven. And so when we bless God, and we bless God in Christ, we are encouraged, and it points us to that day when we will be able to praise without hindrance, when we will be lost in wonder, love, and endless praise. 
And so he says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of our inheritance. But why does he use that title? You know, you should know. Nothing is there by accident. There is a purpose. And so identifying God as the Father of our Lord Jesus brings something further. So we know that the Jewish thought was God was sovereign. He was creator. He was the redeemer of his people out of Egypt. But with the coming of Messiah, with the appearance of the Savior, Jesus Christ brought further revelation. And so the great God, the sovereign God, the God who did wonders in the Old Testament, including redeeming Israel from Egypt, is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of John 4. Remember when the Lord Jesus had that conversation with the woman of Samaria. Woman, believe me, he said... The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such to worship him. So Jesus is speaking of worshipping the Father, the Father also seeking worshippers. Now, here's the question. What does he mean when he uses the term father? Is he just saying, well, you know, father of mankind? That's what many like to say. Oh, well, God is a a general father of mankind. Or is he maybe speaking of father of believers? Well, no. The emphasis here is in relation to the Trinity. You see, each time that Jesus addressed God in the gospel record, he called him Father. There was only one occasion when he didn't. And hopefully you'll be able to think of it. It was when he was on the cross, as he died for the sins of his people. What did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But every other time he called him Father the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's so important that you understand that in Jesus' time upon this earth, no individual Jew would ever speak to God as my Father. In fact, in the Old Testament, on the rare occasion that God is called Father, it's in a collective sense, so like the Father of a nation. Never personal. Never in terms of intimacy or relationship in that regard, Abba Father. And so for Jesus to use the term Father, he is not keeping with tradition, he is saying that God is his Father. You know, you see that throughout the Gospel of John. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so by calling God Father, Jesus was saying that he was of the same essence as God. God was his Father, and as the Son, he was fully God. And by the way, the Jewish rulers knew exactly what he was saying. Do you know why? Because they tried to kill him for it. They said he was a blasphemer. In John 10, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then it says, The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. How did he do it? By saying that God was his Father. 
John 17, that wonderful prayer, what did he say? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, he's asking that the Father receive him in glory once again. What was he doing? Affirming his deity every time. He calls God Father. He is affirming that he is the same nature as the eternal God. Matthew 11. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You see, their relationship is so close. They know each other in an intimacy only known in the Godhead. And friends, we cannot know God, we cannot know the Father in any other way but through the Son. You see that throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or later on, Ephesians 1 17, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. 2 Corinthians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. 2 John, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Now, that's why you need to remember that when God is called Father, it draws in the fact that he is Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, naturally speaking, is the Father of one. Christ is the Son of God by nature. Friends, outside of Christ, we are by nature children of Satan. And Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but by me. And that's why we must never take for granted the privilege of speaking to Almighty God as our Father in heaven. And in this first instance, he is the father only of Christ and by extension to us when we are adopted into the family through Jesus. And so this is the God who is the source of our inheritance. This is the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is only known through Jesus Christ. And tonight, if you are not in Christ, if you don't believe in him, you do not know God. You can only know God as your father if you trust Jesus. And notice in verse 3 that Peter says that this God is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the full name of the Savior. And it has all that scripture reveals for our Savior God. He is Lord, the Sovereign One. He is Jesus, the Incarnate One, the One who came and dwelt amongst us. He is Christ, the Anointed King. There is a preciousness, dear friends, when we give him that full title, Lord Jesus Christ, the One in whom is all our hope and salvation. And it is the Father himself who is pleased to give his only begotten son that title, that name which is above every name, that name of Lord. And the beauty of it is this. If you look in verse 3, don't miss out that little but vital word, ah. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that one word, Peter pulls all these great, glorious truths right down to us. The personal side of things. This great God, this divine Lord of the universe is ours if we are believers tonight. This Jesus who is willing to live in this world, this broken world, and die upon the cross and yet rise again in mighty triumph. This Christ, the anointed King, not far off, but the one who has come near and who by grace has become our Saviour and our Lord. He is ours now. And the fullness of all that he is will be ours in the future when we will be made like him, united with Christ, one with God, brought together to know God as of our Father in the glory to come. We will know in full what now we only know in part. Who is the source of this amazing heavenly inheritance? The great God. And it brings us back to those truths we've been looking at. This great God who has set his love upon sinners like you and me from before the foundation of the world. This great God who has given us this inheritance purely because of his sovereign grace. We haven't earned it. We haven't merited it. It has been given to us. And we bless him for it. Because he is the source. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through Christ that these blessings are made ours. Have you trusted him? You know, this heaven ahead, these glories. Friends, they're only there if you trust Jesus. And so do you trust him? Do you know him? Are you saved tonight? Do you have this hope when you walk out of this building, whatever life may come? Do you know that you are saved? That your sins are forgiven? And if you do, oh, you should rejoice. You have been made children of God. A stunning future. How? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. God's good pleasure. Setting his love upon you from before the foundation of the world. All of his grace. He's the source. That's why we should praise him. You know, if you are not praising the Lord this night, there is something seriously not right if our lives as believers are constantly marked by a lack of thankfulness. If we never express our thanks to God for what he has done, then we are in trouble. We should rejoice in the Lord and bless him and praise him and thank him for saving us and setting us on this path to glory. So do you have a thankful heart? Do we thank the Lord? For his gracious dealings, his eternal mercies, which he has poured upon us, grace that we did not deserve. Do we rejoice in these things? How we need to remember that even though troubles may come, and they will, even though storms may arise and trials surround us, we still have reason to praise the Lord because he has laid hold of us, he has saved us, and he will keep us. And one day we'll be with him forever. Amen. So let it be.